you've marked hymn number 58. Looking forward into that time when it'll be our hymn of encouragement or hymn of invitation. Perhaps we could again say what a privilege each of us have as those interested in serving our great God of heaven together, together today, without that fear of being molested or harmed by civil authorities or those in power, but yet to come together in a sense of community and in fellowship, first and foremost with God and His Son, and also the wonderful fellowship we enjoy one with another. Last Lord's Day morning, we considered a lesson the idea and the mission of which was to remind us of the beauty and the wonderfulness and the character of that divine institution known as marriage. We turn to Hebrews 13 verse 4 and remind ourselves of the honor that's within it and how wonderful it is to consider the means and influence that marriage has on our society and on that which we can appreciate daily in my life and in yours. Truly, what a marvelous blessing it is to think about the way in which God looked out for his human family by making the oldest institution known as marriage. But today, as we consider another lesson along the subject of marriage and other kinds of families, might I ask you to notice with me the title I've given to this lesson? And it is a title which may at least at the outset appear a bit troubling. In fact, as we consider the blessing itself that marriage presents and the character of the family as we know it uh, revealed and made known by the will of God, we by the same token encounter various passages of scriptures that challenge us to ever be mindful that not all families are pleasing in God's sight, that not all families find the approval of the divine character of heaven. It is to that subject we'll turn our attention this morning. And by way of introduction, could we not make some of the following comments? As we saw last Lord's Day in the passage that we read a moment ago, marriage is honorable in all. And that first part of that verse was the focus of our attention last Lord's Day morning. Though quite often marriage itself has taken a beating from the ideas and the perceptions of men, we noted time and again that in the Bible, God blesses that marvelous union and unity of marriage, and when that satisfies the purposes and the will that he has in mind, truly what a great blessing it is for those involved in it. It is, however, by the same token, to notice that there are again some families, those who have an arrangement, those who are put together in a way that does not meet the will of God, and as such, those kinds of families, if you will, we will discuss in some greater detail this Lord's Day morning. Might we begin, though, by saying, anything that opposes the will of God is that which is then bad, or that which we might say is wicked, or that which, again, we might describe as ungodly, and it's always a shameful thing. In fact, each of us, when we find ourselves having committed something or find ourselves separated from God's will, we too cover ourselves in shame. Wasn't it the grand statement of old? We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. All sin is shameful. Society may make excuses to the contrary. It may, in fact, make assertions to the contrary, but it doesn't change the fact. And do we not read that interesting and perhaps one of the most graphic descriptions of the wicked in Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21? Notice again that which was stated so very long ago. 
as Isaiah, through the nature of God and his revelation, spoke about the wicked. He said, there's no peace, saith, saith my God, to the wicked. And have you ever noticed that previous description? The way in which that lack of peace is identified in the life of those opposed to God. He said, they're like the troubled sea whose waters cast up mire and dirt. You see, the peacefulness then that would be a joy and that which you and I would desire is not available to those that are apart from God, to those that are the wicked. And so it is. We then consider the family today. In James 4, verse 4, we read a timeless passage that reminds us yet again that society and its viewpoint does not determine God's will. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And thus it may well be society condones many kinds of families. You and I, though, as we rely upon the word of God, could not so condone them, because if God opposes them, then you and I, as we speak as the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4.11, must also identify and describe them in that same way. And so this morning, as we look at some of the families that we may encounter, those that the world presents to us, let us look at them through the lens of the Word of God and see what, in fact, the Word of God has to say about them. The first one to discuss is one that is rather commonly upon our mind in the sense that we are faced with it so very often. Let me ask you to consider a few moments with me about homosexual families. Isn't it the case that as you and I perceive the character of this alternate lifestyle, as it's so often called, that is presented to you and me, we should appreciate the fact that it would appear that it is somewhat more and more appearing each and every year. There are court cases that are designed to deal with it. There are television programs that openly present it. There are characters on those programs, often the lead characters at that that not only approve and condone it, but in fact belittle those who are opposed to it. Furthermore, we even see that in our schools it is now almost to the point. We haven't gotten that here in Tennessee yet, but in some of the northeastern states of our land, it is now the case where parents have no say-so when it comes to the teaching of homosexuality in school. The school board and the other activities associated with it mandate that it must be taught and the Parents have nothing that they can say to the contrary. Is it, does it then seem to you and me that this is a type of subject that it seems is becoming predominant? It, needless to say, does have a rather progressive agenda, doesn't it? In fact, compared today to, say, 25 years ago, do you hear much more about homosexual lifestyles today? Is it such that it's more openly discussed by those who pursue and defend it? The answer, that's obviously yes, isn't it? As you and I consider that fact, though, consider the following statistic with me, and I've listed it on the screen. In the census of the year 2000, thus about six years ago now, we understand that the United States of America is commanded, in fact, by the Constitution to conduct a census. And every ten years when that's done, those figures are released, and you and I can study them or use them or look at them. According to the statistics from that census, at that time, there were 106,741,426 homes in America. Of that number, 601,209 were openly proclaimed homosexual. Now, we might observe that it would appear that that percentage of the whole is reasonably small. 
But there are two things that nonetheless cause us great concern. One, how many others might there have been that never openly proclaimed it? And furthermore, might we appreciate that even that number is large enough, itself being larger than one, to warrant our concern? For you see, we appreciate that even legislation is now being passed in various states, and you and I had opportunity to weigh in on that last Tuesday, about we've reached the point where we now apparently must define what marriage is, the characteristics of it, and those who may participate in it. There are other states who don't see it that way. That same amendment that passed here did not pass everywhere that it was presented. There are other states, you see, in other territories of our land and other countries as well who look more openly upon and in fact look upon homosexual families as entirely normal in such a way that they're merely alternate to what one considers typically normal from the past. But as you and I note that point, that leads us right back to where we've started. Is there humanity's perspective only or has God said anything about it? As we open the pages of the wonderful Word of God, we again quickly assert the fact that when God has spoken, that settles all the issues. You and I really need not argue against it because we can't fight against God. We're destined to lose that fight. Isn't it amazing as we look at God's Word, there have been three dispensations of time. And as you and I have studied that, being the patriarchal age, the mosaic age, and finally today this Christian age, it should quickly come to our mind homosexuality really isn't new. It has been a part of mankind, it seems, from early on in, in the days of his creation. That certainly isn't the way it was in Eden, as we've studied in our Bible study class. But as early as Genesis 19, we have record of homosexuality in existence. As we turn back the clock then to Genesis chapters 18 and 19 and recall the interesting and powerful scene of that early age and time, we notice that the cities of interest at that time were Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's an amazing thing to consider that God especially appreciated the fact that Lot had pitched his tent toward Sodom. That very nephew of Abraham was thus in a position whereby a great difficulty may well come upon him. And God dispatched a couple of angelic messengers to go to that city and give him orders whereby he and his family must leave because God was going to bring his judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. When we remember the fact that those angelic visitors came and took the form of men, we see a rather amazing set of events. It wasn't the case in Genesis 19 that the men of the city came then to Lot's house and knocked on the door and pleaded that he bring out those angelic messengers thinking that they were men so that they might know them. With the word know being used the same way it had been used with regard to Adam and Eve in Genesis 4 verse 1. They were desirous of sexual relations with them, men with men. And in the aftermath of that scene, you might remember that God, in fact, ultimately was able by encouragement to bring out but three, Lot and his two daughters. His wife even ultimately became a pillar of salt when she turned and looked back. But isn't it interesting then in verses 24 and following that the God of heaven rained fire and brimstone upon these cities in judgment upon their wicked ways? Did God approve of homosexuality in the patriarchal age of time? He didn't. He made it well known to both Sodom and Gomorrah that such was opposed to his will and that such ought not be the case amongst the human family. 
But what about the Mosaic age? Going forward several centuries until after that time God gave the laws on Mount Sinai to Moses, did his viewpoint toward this change at that moment? In Leviticus 18, we notice something interesting said about that fact. Amongst the scriptures I've listed for us to consider, Leviticus 18, verse 22, a rather brief passage, and it simply says, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. God's viewpoint toward it did not change even in the Mosaic age. He had seen considered it was opposed to his will in that early age, and now, centuries later, even amongst the people of Israel, he had even stated two chapters later in Leviticus 20, verse 13, here the statement is even strengthened somewhat. Earlier he had identified in Leviticus 18 that it was an abomination, and now he says, If a man lie with a man as with a woman, it is an abomination. Both of them shall be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. There were some 11 offenses in the Old Testament that, according to God, were to be punished by capital punishment. They were to be put to death, and one of them was homosexuality. Can we not then appreciate that whether it be patriarchal or mosaic age, God's viewpoint toward it was the fact that he stated it was not to be. It was opposed to his will, and thus it was sinful. Inasmuch, though, as all of that is Old Testament consideration, our minds certainly must rush to the time of the New Testament, for that's the law under which you and I live today. It is that testament under which we serve. What about the New Testament era? Does it say anything about the subject? It does on at least two very explicit occasions. In Romans 1, the opening chapter of that epistle to the Romans, Paul very expressly addressed some of the sins that were committed by the Gentile nations. And isn't it amazing that beginning in verse 26 of that chapter, he expressly lists homosexuality as one of them. But isn't it amazing, in verse 32 he says, These are worthy of death. And thus we see that those who work that which is unseemly, men with men, burning in their lust one toward another, God says it ought not be. He says, This is sinful, it's opposed to my will. When God makes that declaration... It reminds us of 1 Corinthians 6, where on that occasion, as Paul made address to the church in Corinth, he expressly made note of some of the sins of which they had been guilty. That is, things that formerly they had done. At the close of verse 9, notice what he says. He quickly begins by saying that these shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That alone is an eternal penalty being barred from the kingdom of God, but then he lists those who will never enter that place. And the very last word in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, is the homosexual. The very last word. Now the King James describes it as those who abuse themselves with mankind. The Greek word is literally the homosexual. You and I then, as we proclaim God's thoughts on this subject, we aren't being ugly or mean. We're simply attempting to reveal or make known that which God has declared. We should appreciate God loves people, all of us, even sinners, but he does not love sin. In fact, he pleads that men will turn from a life of sin and forsake and repent of that which they've done, and that's what the Corinthians did. Have you ever noticed the past tense verb that Paul used? But such were some of you. Don't tell us then that homosexuals are born that way. 
The Corinthians gave it up. They had been, but they no longer were. And thus we appreciate it's possible to repent of that sin as it is with any other, and to thus live and to draw oneself nearer to the God of heaven who loves them. And thus, those families that themselves are homosexual in character are a sinful family, and God through His Word pleads with them to appreciate the force of His teaching and to come back to the way that God would have a rightful family to be. But that isn't the only family for our discussion today. Might we consider yet another? There are other kinds of families too that warrant our attention because the Bible addresses them as well. What about those families of fornication? Families of fornication. By that, let me define. By that we mean a man and a woman who live together, enjoying the relations of marriage even though they are not married. May I submit to you that there was a day when that was understood to be a disgraceful thing. You and I can likely remember that. It was looked upon in the community as being something that simply shouldn't be. It was again looked upon in a rather disgraceful fashion. But times have changed. In fact, nowadays, that typically isn't even looked upon as being unusual anymore. In those census figures I mentioned a moment ago, in fact, if you update them just a little bit, it was only now about three weeks ago that another publication released the following observation. Amongst the kinds of families in our land that are increasing in number, this one is the fastest growing one. More and more people are choosing to cohabitate as the fancy term is used, to live together prior and without being married, perhaps never being married. We might well note then that amongst those homes, even in the year 2000 that numbered this, there were approximately five and a half million. But all that again leads us to understand. Though these descriptions of it may be such that it's a cohabitation, what does God call it? Is there any other name for it? There is. In fact, God in His Word has a description, a term for that. It's included under the housing of fornication. And that's where I chose to use the descriptive term, families of fornication. At this point, might we recall that when God fashioned and made the idea of marriage, one of the blessings and one of the powerful realities of it was that intimate union between the husband and his wife. And that is not to be enjoyed outside of the bounds of marriage. We know that because 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2 made that statement to us. There Paul to the Corinthians said, To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and every woman have her own husband. And thus anything outside that is thus by definition fornication. Thus extramarital affairs, or in fact, Sex outside marriage is that which is opposed to the will of God. It's fornication. And as such, we can see that this other term for it is very different than the one society may utilize. For after all, isn't it the case that marriage, as we see it, is that beautiful union in which there's a commitment one to another? Those who play house and live together enjoying the so-called benefits of marriage without being married, they've made a mockery of God's claim of marriage. They've made a mockery of the very statement that divinity, that beautiful nature of the institution of marriage. And thus, might we appreciate that God does address fornication on many occasions. Notice just a few of them with me. 
in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19, as Paul made description to the Galatian brethren about the character of those who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, he gave a rather extensive listing. Have you ever noticed the first two elements of the list? Those who commit fornication. That alone makes this an eternal subject. Those who participate in that then and never obtain forgiveness from it, they then stand under divine judgment. Those families of fornication, those occasions in which that's present, that's again something on which the God of heaven doesn't look upon favorably. Rather, he looks upon that sinfully and wickedly. The character also in Revelation 22, verse 15, it's almost as though on the last page of the Bible, God says one more time that those who will not partake of the tree of life, those who will not be granted entrance into heaven, are whoremongers. And that's just a King James word that translates the word fornicator. The foes who are guilty of that, and that hastens their mind to Hebrews 13.4. The second part of that verse, marriage is honorable in all but dead undefiled, and whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Those whoremongers, again, that's the King James word for the fornicators, they God will judge. What a frightening thing then to fall into the hands of the living God, for our God is a consuming fire. We again appreciate God loves all people, but He does not love sin. He hates sin. And so it is that you and I and our opportunities to recognize in our society, though society may approve families of fornication, God doesn't. May we incessantly teach and indoctrinate our children with what God has said on this pertinent subject. For after all, society is not going to be the upholder of truth. Society opposes God's will in all too many cases. Whether it be then homosexual families or families of fornication, we have seen man has veered far and wide from what God has revealed and what the family ought to be. But we have another sinful family to turn our attention to also this morning. For you see, in those same passages that we've already discussed, there's another word that occurs. And this word also begs our attention, and in fact turns our attention to ask about those adulterous families. What do we mean by this? What do we mean by those circumstances by which the name could be adulterous? This is what we mean by that. An instance where a man and a woman are married, but unscripturally married. That is to say, their marriage does not accord with the premises of marriage as revealed by the Word of God. Is this a problem? Is it an issue in our land and in our day? You and I can quickly see that the answer to that is an overwhelming yes. For after all, when we contemplate that what is the principal subject that makes this a difficulty, we each realize that the Bible does say something about divorce, but our land says much more about it. You and I can pursue the fact that in our newspapers, magazines, even on television, oftentimes there's advertisements, no-fault divorce. A man and a woman simply, for no reason, choose to eliminate or end their marriage, and thus the lawyers can happily make that happen, and there needs to be no cause. There needs to be no specific reasons given for it. In fact, it's somewhat sad to realize that the laws of our land are actually in favor of those who would desire that to happen. 
In fact, the laws of our land are currently as this. If two, if man and woman reach that point where one of them wants, the, wants a divorce, it does not matter whether the other one wants it or not. The laws of the land are on the side of the one that does, and the divorce will happen, regardless whether the other appreciates it, desires it or not. That's the way our laws currently are written. Isn't that sad? But you and I can see then that this adulterous family is one that God has discussed on a number of places and a number of occasions. Notice with me some of the things that we furthermore can say, just from statistics. In the year 1993, there were almost 1.2 million divorces in our land. Almost 1.2 million. That's a large number, isn't it? And quite often you and I see instances on the TV where a given person divorces and remarries maybe six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. And all the while that's giving an impression that one can do this about as often as you like. It's about like getting a car. You get one, you don't like it, you take it back and get another. Marriage doesn't work that way. For you and I noticed last Lord's Day morning that God founded marriage with an element far deeper than that. He founded marriage in a way and in a powerful fashion whereby it is to be understood as being far more meaningful than that. It's not to be cast aside so trivially and so lightly. Now it is true. As we see divorce spoken of in the Bible, God did say in Malachi 2.16, I hate putting away. I hate divorce. Even in the best of situations, Divorce presents a circumstance whereby the perpetual union of that bond has been broken. But God does allow divorce, but He does not allow, allow it freely. The New Testament, in fact, as the Son of God addressed this very subject, pointed our attention, Matthew 19, and it is to that that I would beg you to turn your attention with me over the next moment or two. In Matthew 19, beginning in verse number 3, Jesus had been asked a question. Those who came and asked the question asked a very good one. We cannot fault them for asking it. In fact, it was a raging debate amongst their day. Shall a man put away his wife for every cause? That sounds just as modern as if it were asked yesterday. What are the grounds by which a man can lawfully put away his wife? There were two schools of thought in that day. On the one side was the school of Shammai, the other the school of Hillel. They were both recognized and respected priests. One gave one answer, one gave the other. These Pharisees asked the Lord, well, who is right? Can you put away your wife just for any old cause, or does it have to be fornication? One of those schools said that. The other said, no, it can be for any cause. These Pharisees who asked the Lord that question thought they had him trapped. For you see, in their mind, no matter which way he answered, he would distance himself influentially from one group or the other. If he gave the answer that sided with the school of Hillel, then those of Shammai would hate him. If he answered the other way, the school of Hillel's individuals would hate him. Jesus wasn't concerned about politics. He wasn't interested in what they may think. He simply began in verse 4, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. He took them back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 and said he made them male and female, but he didn't stop there. He stated in verse 6, Whatsoever therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. 
As we noted last Lord's Day, there are three involved in marriage, and when God joins them, it is not the liberty of man to loose them and to set them free. But when God says that can happen, and when that sufficient grounds has been given, then in verse number 9, Jesus made this statement. He further amplified and discussed it by saying, Whosoever therefore shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso that marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. And thus as Jesus made that statement, those who heard were shocked. For in verses 10 through 12, the disciples themselves said, If it is thus be so with a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus didn't disagree with them. You and I must realize that when we enter marriage, we understand it to be perpetual. And the only grounds that God has given for remarriage numbers two. In fact, can we use some passages? We've looked at one. Here we've seen the first. What happens when, in an instance, where one of the partners in that marriage is not sexually faithful? Where one of the members, be it the man or the woman, is not faithful to the other? We've seen Jesus there saying, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. What if the exception clause were not present? What if the Lord had said, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marrieth another, committeth adultery? That would have outlawed all remarriage, would it not? Following any divorce. But Jesus didn't say that. There was an exception clause. He said, Unless that divorce is for the cause of sexual immorality, unless it be for the cause of fornication, then those that remarry are guilty of adultery. And thus we've seen that Jesus made a rather stern statement, didn't he? He there helped us appreciate the fact that in that thought and in that day, a stern statement was given. You and I can see then today that when those who enter into a second marriage with a previous divorce for just any reason, no matter what that may have been, oh, how they tread on the very union and unity and power of that marriage, Notice some of the other things that the Bible reveals to us about that. We've just then seen remarriage is granted as a great gift by God to those who are innocent in that party. What about that marriage where the one who is innocent and the one who is guilty, God then forever bars the guilty one from remarriage. But the innocent, Jesus expressly gave the right to remarry. That's the whole meaning of the exception clause. That one is granted by God the capability, the blessing of being able to remarry with His graces and with divine authority. But those others, those who divorce and remarry for any cause and any number of times, that's the very subject Jesus discussed and the very one that He said was not right. It is an interesting point then to appreciate that was one of the instances whereby remarriage can take place with God's blessing. The only other one ever mentioned is in Romans chapter 7 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What happens when one of the marriage partners dies? What happens when death takes one of the partners of the marriage? Can the other one remarry? Can the one still living remarry? God says yes. But he does say in 1 Corinthians 7.39, only in the Lord. That person has the capability and God-given right to remarry. But notice, that law that then that was present in the former case, 
was terminated at death. That's the very word that's used in Romans 7. She is not bound to her husband after he's dead. And so it is, as you and I see this, that terminates all of the capabilities of remarriage, does it? That God gives no other. Thus, as we summarize that point, can we not say that when a man and woman enter that union of marriage, God intends it until death do them part. When death does part them, the one still living has God's right, given right to him or her to remarry. However, the only other, if one of them guilty fornication, then that gives the other one the right to remarry. Can we not see that what God said preserves and protects the power of marriage and embeds in it a nature that's so marvelous and so grand? In fact, what does God also say about those who do that? What about the person who marries one who was formerly divorced? Did Jesus say anything about that? That's in that same text we just noted. Whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. You see, these families of adultery are not to be taken lightly, are they? The only reason that we choose to consider them and to take the stance that we have done in regard to the nature of God's Word is because the Lord did. Again, God loves all people, but He doesn't love sin. Whether that be homosexuality, whether it be fornication, or whether it be adultery, He wants men and women to come to know the gracious goodness of the power of the gospel and to live their life in compliance with it so that they can entertain an eternal home in heaven. And as we've learned today, some of these family types, then at judgment they're going to be judged. Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. May we then appreciate the nature of God's family. May we look upon that in the power and sustenance with which God made it. And may we strive to so live our life and to encourage others to do the same, that they uphold and honor marriage as God made it and the family as God fashioned it. In summary, then, we can say, as we draw our lesson today to its conclusion, that as wonderful as the family by God's nature is, there are some families that are not in accordance to God's law, and thus they are sinful. We've noted that the homosexual family, the family of fornication, the family of adultery, God has addressed all of them. And though our society may approve one or more of them, God doesn't. But yet He pleads with the sinner. He pleads with those apart from His will to understand that marriage too is an important thing, never to be taken lightly, never to be looked upon trivially or with a mindset that I can do away with it if I like and perhaps fashion a different one. We see then that whether it be any of these, we understand God's love toward us because He has given us these instructions. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing to arrive at the judgment and be found guilty of one or more of these as a nation, understanding God had never revealed it to us otherwise, but He has told us. Let us then each appreciate the nature of His revelation and understand the nature and power of the families He's made it. As we analyze our lives, each of us today, and think about the nature of what God has said on the family, are each of us endorsing and encouraging families as God made them? Or are we too often guilty of allowing culture to define for us what the family is? May we never be guilty of the latter. For again, the family as nature would have it, as culture defines it, is not the family that God approved. 
today. Are you, a sin, are you a Christian? Have you had your sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb? Are you such that you are walking in fellowship with God and with His Son? That fellowship we enjoy in 1 John 1 verse 7 as a kind of fellowship that's marvelous and great and lasting. But if we are given to sin habitually to where we are not as we ought to be, then that fellowship isn't present because we're walking in darkness. 1 John 1 verses 5 and 6. Today, if you need to come to your Heavenly Father, perhaps as an alien sinner, one who's never become a member of His body, one who's never been added to the church by His Son, today could be the day for that. And oh, what a joyous day for you it would be. If you have, though, believed and repented, confessed and been, and been immersed, but you haven't been faithful to your Lord, understand that He hasn't given up on you. In fact, He sent His Son to die for you, and that blood can still cleanse and wash your sins but you must come to Him. If we could help you do that today in prayer, if we can help you do that today in any fashion, won't you let us know that even now while together we stand and while we sing.